And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then Adam, to, to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now lest he stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore the Lord sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Many of you enjoy taking a cruise on the ocean. I have never had the the privilege of going on an extended cruise. Uh, we, We did go once on the Alaska ferry from Juneau to, uh, or from Prince Rupert actually up to Juneau, about 24, 36 hours. And that was probably enough for me. Uh, but uh, I, I know that some of you really enjoy that. Uh, and when you're on those ships, you are free to enjoy everything on the ship. The, the swimming pools, the exercise rooms, the, the deck chairs, uh, the restaurants, the entertainment. And yet, There is one thing you are not free to do on a cruise ship, and that is you are not free to set the course. The captain does that, and the captain has the the final say there. And in a sense, that is true of life as well. God, in his wisdom, has given us tremendous freedom of choice, and yet he hasn't given us the right to choose the consequences. We can choose the direction we want to go, but sometimes that comes with consequences. And perhaps more than any other society, we live in one where we have that tremendous freedom of choice. We are free to choose who we want to marry, what career we want to go into, what place we want to live in. Uh, I I marvel at that when you think of the the beauties of Stevens County, why anybody would want to live in Seattle. 
<laughs> Why would you make that kind of choice? That seems crazy to me. But uh, we have that tremendous freedom. Not every society has that. Our daughter, Vicky, taught English as a second language at, at the university down in uh, Boise for um, a couple years. And one of her jobs was to take groups of students that came and put them into an English immersion class where they would spend six weeks just concentrating on learning English. And they often got groups of students from Japan. And her job was not only to, to teach them English, but also to supervise their activities and plan field trips and help them to get a grasp of the area and so forth. And on one occasion, as she came to the end of one of those experiences, one of the young men that was there with tears in his eyes said, I don't want to go home. I, I, I wish I could stay here. And uh, she said, well, what, why don't you want to go home? And he said, well, when I go home, I have to go into school to become a doctor. And I do not want to be a doctor. And she said, well, can't you choose another career? He said, no, that would be a shame to my family. I, I'm locked into that for life. That, that would be a, a, a tough way to live. Uh, he didn't have that freedom to make that choice. We can make many choices. We can make moral choices. The, the fact is, we are free to choose our way. But as I said, we're not free to choose the, the consequences. God gave Adam and Eve a tremendous opportunity to make a choice. And unfortunately, they made the wrong choice. But because he loved them, because he did not want to make robots, he wanted to make someone who could return that love, he had to give them that freedom to make a choice, whether it was the right one or the wrong one. He, he had to, to create them that way so that he could extend his love to mankind. Uh, God made the choice clear. In chapter 2, verse 17, he said, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. And die they did. Spiritually, that relationship with God was broken. They, they died in their spirit when they ate of that fruit, and eventually they died physically as well. As we look at the passage we read this morning, I think it's summed up for us very succinctly in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, where it says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we see in this passage both the wages of sin and the gift of God's grace to us as well. We're going to look first at the wages of sin in verses 8 through 19 here. We, we got a glimpse of that what was happening last week when we saw that Satan came and introduced doubt into the mind of Eve and then deception, and that led to disobedience there. And with it, they lost the tremendous privilege in verse 8. In verse 8, it speaks of the fact that God would come and meet them in the cool of the evening, walk together with them. We were looking at our Sunday school class at the Garden Experience, in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, coming out of this passage here, in the garden, they had that tremendous privilege of walking and talking with the, the Lord and fellowshipping with him, interacting. Just think of that. They, they got to interact with the creator of the universe, the, the Lord of lords and, and king of kings. And then they chose to eat of the fruit. And suddenly that relationship was ended. 
They would struggle with sin and shame and guilt and fear the rest of their lives. And so what do they do? They do what we do if we're not careful. They tried to hide from God. They found a bush or something to get behind, a a thicket perhaps, and uh, they were going to hide from God. At least they thought they could. It's kind of impossible to do. Uh, I think of Jonah in that connection. Remember, Jonah received the message from the Lord, I want you to go to Nineveh and, and preach the destruction of that city and so forth. And Jonah was afraid if he went that the people of Nineveh would repent and God would change his mind. So what did he do? He got onto a ship headed completely the opposite direction. He was going to go to Tarshish, as far away in that day as he could get from Nineveh. He was headed out there and... Um, He went to sleep in the ship thinking, I've got away from God, I've got away from his command. But it didn't happen. God was there. And and God knew exactly where he was, and he had a rather rough journey that that he had to make there. Uh, The psalmist puts it clearly for us in Psalm 139, where he raises the question, where shall we flee from your presence? Where, where, Where can we go? He said, if I go into the remotest parts of the earth, you're there. If I go in the depths of the sea, your, your spirit is there. He, the psalmist came to realize there is nowhere that we can go to get away from God. God is omnipresent. He, he is wherever we find ourselves. He is there. And yet, don't we sometimes live as if we can hide from God? We're tempted to do something that that is sinful and we know it's wrong and we rationalize it, we say, you know what? Nobody else is going to know it. I I can hide it. Uh, We tell ourselves it's not going to hurt anybody else. But God knows. God is there. And, And we can't hide that from him. And all sin ultimately is against God. So God comes on the scene here and he raises that question, where are you, Adam? Where are you? Now, God knew where he was. He he was giving Adam the chance to reveal himself here. But notice in verse 9, he holds Adam personally responsible for what happened. In verse 9, he says, Then God called the man and said to him, Where are you? Didn't call Eve at that point, but she did come forward with him. But he placed the responsibility on Adam's shoulders. He was the one who was responsible for this particular action there. Now, I think it's important for us to realize that when Adam and Eve chose to eat of that fruit, God was not taken by surprise. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he speaks of the fact that before the foundation of the world, God planned for our redemption. God had you and I in mind before he even made us, before he even created us. He knew that we were going to need a a means of salvation. So he already had the plan in place before he created the world, before he created Adam and Eve. Uh, He he was looking out for our well-being there. And so his purpose in calling Adam forth here was not to confront and to condemn him. It was to offer to him a way of redemption. That is his great desire. He's not willing that any should perish, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 there. His desire is that we come and we be redeemed and we come back to a right relationship with himself. Now, that took some doing in Adam's life because Adam 
came up with the bright idea that he was going to justify himself. How was he going to justify himself? It's Eve's fault. It's the woman that you gave me. If, if you hadn't given her to me, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, she follows his example. She said, well, you know, it's not my fault. It's the serpent's fault. You hadn't created the serpent, this wouldn't have happened. What are they saying in that? They're saying, God, it's your fault. It's not our fault. It's your fault. Don't we love to do that? Blame somebody else for our problems? We can blame society. If it gets really bad, we can blame our parents. They didn't treat us right. We can blame our partner. We come up with all kinds of people that we can blame. God doesn't allow that in this passage. God says, Adam, you sinned. You are responsible here. We need to beware of playing that blame game. You see it so often. I remember watching kids on the playground get into a fight. What's the first thing they say? Well, he hit me first. Or, or she said this first, so I have the right to say something nasty back to her. We, we always look for somebody to blame our behavior on. And God didn't allow that in this passage. He addresses first the serpent here. The snake is cursed now, uh, changed in form. He, he was uh, a, a very beautiful, crafty creature in verse 1 there. And now he's cursed to crawl on his belly the rest of his life. And maybe it's because of that curse that so many of you hate those little snakes that crawl around out there. They're, they're really nice to look at. Uh, yeah, yeah, you, you got to marvel at how they get around and so forth. It, it, but uh, I know some of you don't, you just detest them. You, don't, you want nothing to do with them. Why did he pick on this snake? Well, the fact is, Adam's sin affected all of creation. Not just Adam, not just Eve, but all of creation there. In Romans chapter 8, in uh, verse 19 there, yeah, verse 19, it says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to the corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. Creation was affected by the fall of man. And how is that possible or why did that happen? Well, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 28, when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them the responsibility of having dominion over the earth the animals, and so forth. And when Adam and Eve chose to sin, it affected that dominion there. Uh, environmental issues today are clouded by greed, by lust, by the irresponsibility of man, by our refusal to manage the, the resources that God give, gave to us. The, the whole of creation is affected because of the sin of mankind. And that was poured out here, first of all, on the serpent. But then he turns to Satan, in a sense. And when you come down to verse 15 there, and uh, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, we looked at last week, it said, He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years there. So that serpent, even though it came in the form of a, a snake, that serpent, the, the power behind it was Satan. 
And so the Lord takes up the battle with Satan at this point. And we enter into a spiritual battle that has raged down through the centuries. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the principalities of the powers of darkness. We are involved in a spiritual battle. And here he describes it as putting enmity between the seed of the devil and the seed of God there. He he said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. What is the seed? What is he referring to here when he speaks of the seed of the devil? I think Jesus nailed it for us in in John 8, 44, when he was dealing with some of the sin of the Pharisees there. He said, you are of your father, the devil. Very strong language that, that he uses there to describe them. But uh, that is the seed of the deceptor of of the enemy today. In Acts 13.10, as Paul is on his first missionary journey, he's dealing with a false prophet there. He says, you are full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. And and, he goes on to bring God's judgment upon him there. Man apart from God is the seed of the enemy. Ephesians chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, speaks to the fact that we used to walk in the course of this world, in the course of darkness there. We were under the dominion, under the power of Satan because of what Adam did back in the, in the garden there. That's why he reveals to us in John chapter 3, you must be born again. We were born under the seed of, of, of the enemy. We have to accept that, that new birth. And that's implied here in verse 15. Notice he says between your seed and what? Her seed at this point. Not his seed. Now we, we, we think of the seed as coming from the man. But in this case it came through the woman. I think we have here a reference to the fact that Jesus was to be born of the Virgin Mary. Not born of man. His father was not Adam or Joseph in the New Testament. It was God himself. Took upon himself human form through Mary, but he was born of a a virgin there. And the result of that is in verse 15, it says, he will bruise you. He, referring to the Messiah, the coming Christ there, will bruise you on the head. You will bruise him on the heel. I think in that is a a forward glimpse looking ahead to the cross. On the cross, Christ suffered and died. But on the cross, he crushed the power of Satan. He became the victor. He won the the battle for us there on the cross of Calvary. And so that was prophesied to the enemy in, in verse 15, to the serpent, the old serpent, the dragon. He said, Satan, your days are numbered. Victory is ahead, and we can rejoice in that victory today. That led to the woman, and why he does the order he does, I don't know. Why did he start with the serpent and work his way down to Adam? That we can only speculate on, and I'm not going to speculate this morning. But to, to Eve, he says, your punishment is twofold here. First of all, you're going to have pain in childbearing. And any of you that have had children can testify to that fact. It's not the easiest experience in, in the world. Uh, somebody said that's why God made women, because men wouldn't be able to go through that. <laughs> it, uh, but uh, uh, 
you, you wonder, why did he allow that? Why, why does that happen? I think we, we get a clue to that in First Timothy chapter uh, three, uh, chapter, chapter 2. I'm thankful we got that TV back there. It says, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into the transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, he's not suggesting in that passage that women are saved by having children. Matter of fact, their life gets totally complicated by having children. And... uh, uh, leads to all kinds of problems sometimes. What I think he is alluding to in that reference is the fact that it was the woman that was going to have the privilege of bringing the Christ child into the world. The way of salvation was going to be opened up through Eve, and Satan, knowing that, has made it miserable to have children, or hard to have children. And so that was all part of the curse that came upon him there. And then the second command to Eve was, your desire shall be for your husband. I think in that we have the fact that she was made subordinate to Adam at that point in time. He speaks of her desire shall be for him. Interesting, that very same word is used in chapter 4, verse 7, where it says, if you do well, he's dealing with Cain here, uh, will not your countenance be lifted up? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you but you must master it. So that, that, the two times where that is used here is one with Eve, one with Cain there. Uh, and I believe the implication there is that God has set up at this point a chain of command. And, and we do well to heed that chain of command. It, before that, there was a perfect relationship, a perfect environment. It wasn't tainted by sin. But every couple today wrestles with the fact that their partner isn't quite perfect. You like to think when you're standing there at the altar uh, uh, getting ready to be married that uh, you've picked the perfect partner. Uh, I hate to tell uh, young brides and young grooms, uh, it just isn't so. You're going to find that there are problems there. And so God has established a a chain of command for the home. And uh, if... uh, if we don't follow that pattern, it leads to all kinds of problems in our life. Same thing is true in society, in the church. God has established authority, not to make it miserable for men and women, but to order society so that we can receive the maximum blessing from it. And we do well to follow God's pattern in our homes, in our churches, and even in our governments as well. Well, that leaves just Adam here, Adam who was very good at blaming his wife. It's Eve's fault. You had actually saying it's your fault. You gave her to me, so it's your fault. God, as he comes to Adam, says, because you've listened to your wife instead of to me, you've eaten from the tree, the ground is going to be cursed for your sake. And so uh, he pronounces a curse upon the ground, and at that point in time, work becomes hard labor. Before then, it was an enjoyment. Yeah, it, it, there, was, there was joy in it. They had the responsibility before then. Work was there long before they chose to sin. Work is not to be looked at, I don't think, as a four-letter word. We, it, it should be something that we enjoy, something that we, we get pleasure out of. But uh, 
Because of Adam's sin, it was tainted by thorns, thistles, the sweat of his brow. And then ultimately, he said to Adam, you came from dust, you're going back to dust. How many times have we stood beside a graveside of a loved one and, and you go through that ritual? Some, some people do where they throw a little bit of dust on the coffin and, and quote those words, uh, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, and, and so forth there. A, a, a reminder that all of us have sinned. All of us have entered into the sin of Adam and Eve, and we need his forgiveness and, and cleansing there. Well, fortunately, that's not the end of the story. Uh, God could have very well left it at that point and said, Adam and Eve, you're on your own. I'm not going to have anything more to do with you. You disobeyed. You've chosen the wrong way. Uh, live with it. But he didn't do that. Because in verses 20 through 24, we get a glimpse, I believe, of the gift of God. And remember Romans 3 or 6.23, what was the gift of God? Gift of God is grace. And so we get a glimpse of his grace here even as he pronounces this judgment upon Adam and Eve, we have, first of all, the promise. What did he promise? I think we see it in verse 20 there, where Adam calls his wife's name Eve. What he called her before then, I don't know. Maybe just woman, I don't know. Um, Maybe he didn't have to, because there was no one else there. He could say, hey, you, and she would know who he was talking to. (laughs) but, but at this point, he gives her a name. I think that's significant. The, the word naming here is the same word we saw back in chapter 2 when he gave names to the animals and to the birds and the fish. It, it denotes that if you have the right to give a name, you have authority over that identity, whether it's an animal or a person or whatever. Uh, how many of you have wrestled with uh, what you're going to call your children? Do you ever go through that process? You get a whole long list of names, and you sometimes you don't even know when that baby's born yet what what the final name is going to going to be there. I I still remember when I we were starting to settle up Ginger's mother's estate there. We we had to go back and get a birth certificate. Now that was a long time ago, and and we finally found one through the state and. On it, it simply said, baby girl Salisbury. They hadn't settled on a name when, when she was born. It wasn't until later that, that, I don't know how much later, that she actually got her official name, but on her birth certificate, it was not there. And that creates some problems sometimes. But uh, in that naming process, there is that sense of authority and leadership there. But what I want us to notice about the, the name that he chose, and, and I, I love the name that he chose, he called her Eve, which means the mother of all living. He was looking forward to death. Uh, he was moving back to the dust. And, and yet he recognized that somehow God was going to give life. And in this case, I think he was looking not just at the grave, but at eternal life. There, there was life be beyond the grave that he had to look forward to. There was that hope evidenced in the very promises that God had given to him. I think they both, both Adam and Eve, understood that promise. Because when it comes time for Eve to have a child, uh, 
Notice in verse four, or chapter four, verse one, she said, "I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord." She recognized or thought that this was the the promise that God had made, and we'll we'll move into that next time. But uh, she, in faith, looked forward to the fact that God was going to somehow defeat the enemy, and perhaps it was going to be through Cain. Wasn't to be through Cain, but that, that's okay. That that faith and hope was was still there. And then we have in the gift of God here, I think, the pattern. What was the pattern that God was giving them? Notice in verse twenty one, it says, The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. They had already clothed themselves with what? Fig leaves. And God said, You're not gonna cover sin. It's figs. And fig leaves is not sufficient to deal with sin. And so what did he do? He made the first sacrifice. He took an animal, slew the animal, took the skins, made garments out of them, and gave them to Adam and Eve. And I believe in that moment he set the the example, the pattern for mankind to follow. When we come down to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, Almost all things are by the law cleansed or purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, he says, there is no forgiveness or, or remission there. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 speaks of the fact that we are redeemed, not of corruptible things, not of silver and gold. We're redeemed, how? Through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish and without spot. And in the very beginning of time here, as they were dealing with that first sin that they had, God was revealing there is a solution. It, it, and ultimately that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ giving himself on the cross for us and shedding his blood for us. In faith it looked forward to his salvation. And then there's the practical considerations I think that come out of these in verses 22 through 24. Knowing the human heart, God expelled them from the garden. God was concerned that they eat of the tree of life and that they would live on eternally. Now, hasn't he promised us eternal life? Don't we have that to look forward to and hope in? He certainly has. But not the kind of life they would have experienced if they stayed in the garden. If they ate of the tree of life there in this world, they would stay in that body for all of eternity. I don't know about you, but I don't want to stay in this body for all of eternity. I'm going to be thankful someday to change it for a new body. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of the fact that this corruption will put on incorruption, this mortal immortality, and so forth. God has something better in mind for us. And so when he refused to allow them to eat of the tree of, of life here, It was, in reality, an act, a gift of his grace. He was saying, I am preparing something better ahead for you. And I trust, and I think that's one of the joys of getting older. The older we get, the more we realize we don't want to stay in this body forever. We want to be home with Christ in glory. We want to have that that transformation and that change. We want to be free from sin, from suffering, from pain and heartache there. And incidentally, as we think of the tree of life, again, in, in Revelation 22, he speaks of the fact 
and he showed me a river. He's in the, the New Jerusalem now, the, the heavenly city that God has prepared for those who love him. He said, he showed me a river, the river of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb. And in the midst of a street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. We're going to get to eat eventually from the tree of life. God would not allow Adam and Eve to do that in their present form, but when we're home with Christ in glory, when we have a resurrected body, he's going to let us eat of the tree of life. We're going to live on eternally with him in in glory. So he's not saying, I'm withholding something good for you. He's saying, I'm just restricting it for now. And so he sent the cherubim to keep them out uh, and he knew they wouldn't be able to withstand the temptation of going in and getting that fruit if, unless the cherubim were there. And I don't know about you, but uh, when, when I read different passages of Scripture, you read Ezekiel and so forth, and you get a glimpse of the cherubim. I, I don't think anybody, if they saw one, would want to argue with them. Uh, they, they are tremendous creatures and, and uh, have tremendous power there. And so in his grace, he kept them from the Garden of Eden. They were exiled to life outside of the Garden But yet, even though they had sinned, God gave them the gift of grace. God extended to them the hope of eternal life. Now, we still live with the consequences of Adam's sin. In Romans chapter 5, he speaks of the fact in uh, verse 12 there. It says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all had sinned. That's a very key verse. When, when you come to the uh, arguments of uh, evolutionary thought and so forth, uh, he's indicating there that death came through Adam's sin. And so if you want to extend it back hundreds and thousands and millions of years, and you say, well, all of that, there was death before then, where did it come from? Uh, God said it came because of Adam. And so I think if we have to make a choice, I think we better stick with God's word and, and accept the fact that he knows what, he, what he's talking about. But then he goes on uh, it, down to verse 15. It says, the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of one, the many died, and, and we are well aware of that fact. Just a couple of weeks ago, we went to the, the funeral service of a, a, a niece. Uh, some of you have had loved ones pass away, uh, many of them home with God in glory. But they have passed away. Uh, Much more, he said, did the grace of God and the gift of grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. And he gives us the hope in that passage of eternal life. We don't have to end life dead in our trespasses and sin. Jesus Christ came. He went to the cross. He gave his life for us so that we could put our faith and trust in him. And as Jesus said, we could be born again. We could experience that new life. Acts chapter 16, verse 31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. It goes back to a question of choice. Adam and Eve had to make a choice. Were they going to eat of the fruit, or were they going to obey God? Are we going to accept the gift that God has offered to us, or are we going to reject it? He gives us that freedom of choice, not the freedom of consequences. If, if we accept him, we have the hope of a glorious eternity with him in glory. 
If we reject that offer, we pay the consequences. We spend eternity in in hell there. So he, he has made it possible for us to experience salvation today. In Colossians 3.10, he speaks of the fact that he is renewing us. He's making us again into the image of Jesus Christ. We are being restored to a a right relationship with him. And if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're on a journey that's going to lead from earth to glory. We have that hope of eternity. I, I like the words... Uh, of a pastor years ago by the name of John Todd. In the early 19th century, he was six years old when both of his parents died. Uh, A kindly aunt sent word that she would be willing to take care of him, and she did. She raised him until he went away to study for, for the ministry there. Later, his aunt became seriously ill and was in distress. She wrote to Todd and asked, would death mean the end of everything, or could she hope for something beyond? And I like the words that John replied to her there. He said, it is now 35 years since I, as a boy of six, was left quite alone in the world. You sent me word you would give me a home and be a kind mother to me. I have never forgotten the day I made the long journey to your house. I can still recall my disappointment when instead of coming for me yourself, you sent your servant Caesar to fetch me. I remember my tears and anxiety as perched high on your horse and clinging tight to Caesar, I rode off to my new home. Night fell before we finished the journey, and I became lonely and afraid. Do you think she'll go to bed before we get there, I asked Caesar. Oh, no, he said reassuringly, she'll stay up for you. When we get out of these here woods, you'll see her candle shining in the window. Presently, we did ride out into the clearing, and there, sure enough, was your candle. I remember you were waiting at the door, that you put your arms close about me, a tired, bewildered little boy. You had a fire burning on the hearth, a hot supper waiting on the stove. After supper, you took me to my new room, heard my prayers, and then sat beside me till I fell asleep. And he goes on to say, someday soon, God will send for you to take you to a new home. Don't fear the summons, the strange journey or the messenger of death. God can be trusted to do as much for you as you were kind enough to do for me so many years ago. At the end of the road, you will find love and a welcome awaiting you, and you will be safe in God's care. That's the hope that comes out of the Garden of Eden. Yes, they chose to sin. Yes, they suffered the consequences. But God in his grace came to them and said, you know what? My grace is sufficient for your sin." And he gave them the hope of eternal life. As you think about that today, have you made that choice to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you have, you have a glorious future to look forward to. And if you haven't, you can do that today. Simply uh, bow in prayer and ask him to forgive your sin, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness, and to become your Savior. He's waiting and willing to do that. And then as you think about that and you think of life today, you have two choices. You can obey God. You can disobey God. God's given you the freedom of choice. And sometimes we complain that life is not fair, that God doesn't know what he's doing in, in our life. But the fact of the matter is, Romans eight twenty eight says, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we can rest in that fact today. And then again in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, speaks of the fact that today we walk by faith, 
not by sight. We're not home yet, but someday we will be. Someday heaven will be reality for us if we have accepted Christ as Savior. And then we'll understand so much of what we wrestle with today. But let's look forward in faith and hope to the glorious future, to the grace of God that he has prepared for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even though Adam and Eve chose to sin, even though they chose to disobey your command, you were not finished with them. You extended to them an offer of grace. We thank you today that your grace is still available. This is the day of grace. We thank you that we can, in the quietness of this moment, simply say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need your salvation. I need you to come into my life. And what a joy and delight it is to know that if if we humble ourselves and do that, you do step into our hearts and lives and you prepare us for a glorious future. Thank you for your grace today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing Grace Greater Than Our Sin.